Hello, this is the sixth season finale of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. So in that novel of yours, Sugi, a public library burns down, a newspaper burns down, several of your characters are working to get around different kinds of repression and, and uh, freedom of speech. Uh, you spent a lot of time thinking about censorship. Uh, do you have a favorite band book? I think that my favorite band book is probably the one that inspired Brotherless Night, which is called The Broken Palmyra. And I'm not actually sure it was ever officially banned in Sri Lanka, which is where Brotherless Night is set, but the authors of the book risked their lives to write it um, under th- under threat of under threat of violence. And, and um, the people who wanted to read it were also at risk as, as they were trying to access that information. So ultimately someone actually had to bring the manuscript to the U S to have it published as like a physical book. And, and even now it's a rare book. I remember you talking about that when we were actually, when the book was coming out, we, and we did our show on, on your book. Um, there are definitely all sorts of ways to ban things without officially banning them. Um, you can kind of scare people into censoring themselves. And I think like under the, environment of like sort of aspirational authoritarianism being pervaded by <laughs> by certain people um with their, yes, with their like that phrase. their big shitty dreams um you know they i think people are starting to censor themselves it's like the moment when people you know someone takes the book off the shelf before they're asked to um and i really doubt that the u.s would actually be a good place to bring a manuscript under threat today would we be the first port of call i don't know and because books are actually getting officially banned here and it's happening more and more so i was wondering is there a favorite book of yours appearing on these lists of banned books uh right now i i mean you know i i want to go back and remind people all those books are great i'm not going to pick one but i want to remind people of an episode that we did with ron charles from the washington post talking about obscenity in literature and how uh, James Joyce's novel Ulysses was banned for many of the same reasons that people are now trying to ban um, books because it was supposedly too sexually explicit, right? And really what it was was that it was a, a brilliant work of art that made complicated political arguments that people didn't really like. But that America was the place to bring that book and get it published when it wasn't being able to be published in Europe. And I find it disheartening that now America is not that place. Yeah, you know, we're recording on Friday, uh, September 22nd, and just yesterday, PEN America released a new report on book bans, and it was full of statistics showing that things are even worse than I thought they were. Like, for example, during, this is, we're in the 23-24 school year now, um, oh my god, and in the previous school year, 22-23, PEN found 3,362 instances of books banned in public school and classroom libraries, which is a 33% increase from the previous academic year, which was not exactly great times either. Yeah, that's not cool. Uh, We've done a couple of episodes uh, talking about uh, the kinds of books that are targeted, mostly books by black and LGBTQ plus authors. But some of our guests have given ideas about how to resist too, and there have been and, the, and as there are more bans, there are also more people fighting back. One of the best examples is the Bro- Brooklyn Public Library, which has a program called Books Unbanned. It offers teens across the country access to the Brooklyn Public Library ebook library. And today, in anticipation of Banned Books Week coming up in October, we're going to talk about what that effort has accomplished 
and how libraries are expanding their efforts to battle book bans. And to discuss that, we're joined by Lee Hurwitz, the Collections Manager at the Brooklyn Public Library. They're part of the library's podcast series, Borrowed, and as part of the Books Unbanned team, they're one of five Brooklyn Public Library staffers named Librarians of the Year by Library Journal. Lee, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're glad. We, librarians are welcome on the podcast at any time. Books on <laughs> but band. I think you're our first ever. Is that true? That's, I think that may I be true. I think that's right. You're not supposed to say that, so you I'm pretending like we have them on all the time. <laughs> all right. can, you can edit that out. Gonna... <laughs> uh, Books on Band has been up and running since April 2022, giving young people access to BPL's collection and half a million ebooks and audiobooks. Can you tell us a little bit about how that began? Yeah, so uh, that was actually National Library Week when we launched it, and uh, it was in a response. It was a response to the unprecedented level of book bans and challenges in this country by concerted, uh, well-financed groups of citizens and uh, political groups, and we were just trying to figure out a way to push back against all of it and most importantly to center teens in all of this uh they're the ones who are most affected uh because largely the book bans and challenges are on young adult literature and so that was that's a running theme through all of this is centering teens and what their needs and desires are so there are a few components to Books Unbanned. There's probably the most well-known, which is our national teen e-card, which, as you mentioned, uh, gives any uh, young person between the ages of 13 and 21 access to our entire uh, digital collection of e-books and audiobooks. Um, so not just banned books, which is uh, what some people think. Um, and uh, there's no, I mean, we, we try really hard not to be gatekeepers, so uh, all they need to do to be eligible is be in that age range and live in the U.S. or its territories. Um, and that's it. Um, another component of this is uh, advocacy and giving teens the tools they need to advocate for themselves and uh, fight back and connect with other teens um, and get support for everything that they're going through. And then another component of this is connecting with other public libraries and librarians across the country. You know, Seattle Public Library launched their own national teen e-card a few months ago, and we're hoping to have other public library systems follow suit. So those are sort of all the, the multi-pronged approach that we came up with uh, to address what's happening in this country. First of all, I've never been so sad to be over 21. Um, <laughs> well, Seattle Public Library time. goes up to 26, I think. But still. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you think that would help me. Um, I, it's, I mean, it's such a cool program. And I have been impressed by the thoughtfulness with which, I mean, just the smallest things are curated so well. Like there are some books that are set to always available mm -hmm. so that you don't have to wait for a copy. Um how is this funded? It just seems like it would be really expensive. We have been fortunate. This is completely privately funded, and it has been since the very beginning. Um, we have had such an incredible response to this, both financially and, and otherwise, that um, we have been able to uh, keep this going with completely uh, private donations and grants. So That's really yeah. cool. Um, <laughs> And I, I want to come back later to the ways that teens are connecting with each other, because I also saw that 
on the site there's that you can a teen can get a book book match or book recommendations from another mm-hmm. teen. That's very cool. So I'm I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've learned about the program's users since its launch because this has been around for 18 months now. The top three states in terms of book bans. Uh, I now know this having read the last two pen reports, but. Florida and Texas just swapped spots. Very exciting for them. Uh, and Whitney's uh, home state of Missouri is is up there, uh, number three. And I'm curious about whether books unbanned readers are from those states, because you all opened the, the program to, as you said, the U.S. and its territories. Um, where are books unbanned readers coming from? How old are they? Like, what do, I mean, do you have any data on them? And, and what books do they want? So they come from everywhere. We have given out cards in all 50 states and uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And that was true pretty much from the beginning. I mean, it did not take long for us to hit every single state. Um, and the uh, age spread is pretty wide, honestly. Um, and, you know, in addition to teens, we also consistently hear from uh, parents, aunts and uncles, youth pastors, librarians, uh, teachers asking about this program on behalf of the teens in their life. And so we hear stories from them as well. Um so it's been it's been a really mixed bag um, since the beginning. And um, what are they reading? They're reading just as widely as any other teen. Um, I think it's really that's sort of the point is that we want to give them choice uh, and the autonomy to make their own decisions about what they would like to read. Um, you know, so romance. Uh, science fiction, um, how-to manuals. We have things just all over the map. Um, and these are things that they can't access where they are. So um, we're able to provide that access for them. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here and we'll be right back. It's interesting to me the technology aspect of this because uh, we were just talking to an earlier episode we had Celestine on talking to her about a, a book she'd written about a future where certain, you know, there's an authoritarian state basically in America. And, you know, book banning is a mark of authoritarianism, but it, you can't, so, but you can't stop people in Florida from checking out books from your place. I mean, this is the whole idea, right? That you're creating a library that that's in a state that is presumably democratic controlled that, that then Republicans, uh, you know, like is... Is DeSantis going to come up and arrest you? Uh, have you had any complaints from uh, like the Texas and Florida or my dumb governor? No, we haven't. I mean, it's it's interesting to see whose radar we're on and and who we're not. I think um, typically no one, or at least politicians, are not delving below the surface. I mean, when these book when these long lists of books are challenged, no one has read any of them. Um, maybe they've never even seen the book. So I think, uh, you know, one example I can give you is uh, Summer Baumier, who now works at Brooklyn Public Library, uh, was a teacher in Oklahoma who, um, at the beginning of the school year last year, resigned uh, because she had shared a QR code to the Books Unbanned page on BPL's website um, so that her students could get access to books that were being um, taken off of the shelves uh, in her classroom uh, and, you know, all, all around her school. And a parent complained about it. And uh, she just decided that she couldn't do her job anymore um, in that climate. So um, that's an instance where our QR code, you know, was on someone's radar and uh, and had real life consequences. 
But we honestly, we have had overwhelming support for this program. We haven't had any legal action threatened against uh, us as far as I know. Certainly one thing that we get asked about a lot and is the reason sometimes that teens are asking for a card is genderqueer. But honestly, it's it really is that they're reading all over the place. A lot of these banned books, as wonderful or important as they might be, are often the preoccupation of adults and not necessarily reflective of what teens are clamoring for. I wonder if part of the, the thing is like, uh, politicians like DeSantis and, and Greg Abbott are just using this as a grandstanding way to get votes. They don't really care whether the kids are reading these books or not. They don't care about kids at all. So, you know, this is kind of a way to get underneath the politics of the situation. Absolutely. And something that it's important to keep in mind is this isn't really about books. Honestly, it's about people. Um, it's about the teens that are represented in these books. Um, and it's all part of this climate of other things like anti-trans legislation, um, abortion bans. Um, it's all part of the same piece. And it's about who gets to exist and participate in public space, too. You know, just to go back to a question that, uh, Sugi, you asked earlier, uh, what have I learned about the teens that are applying for these cards? You know, we've learned all kinds of things about access and accessibility, uh, some of which are directly connected to censorship and some of which are existing issues. Um, so a lot of teens have told us that they live more than an hour away from the closest public library, so they simply cannot get to it or they're not even eligible to have a library card there. We have been told that uh, digital collections are really important for people who uh, have a learning disability or um, who have uh, low vision or uh, a print disability or for somebody with a physical disability who physically can't hold a book and turn the pages. And um, if you can't get a library card in the first place or if you do have one and your library isn't well-funded or doesn't prioritize uh certain things in their digital collection, then that's uh, an issue with access and accessibility. Um, so that's that's another thing that we've learned as well. Uh, of course, it's really cool that you're, you know, that, that I'm glad that's privately funded. Um, and it's great that we can find a, a technological workaround to, you know, bad public policy. But the fact is, it should be it should be publicly funded, we should have this should be easy to do for all kids, and it shouldn't be something that you have to privately raise money to do. Uh, anyway, I'm not asking you because I, I'm sure you agree with that. Uh, but I, I, when the program launched 18 months ago, uh, the library invited teens to write in sharing their experiences with censorship. And earlier this year, you wrote a piece um, for Vice about their responses. I wonder if you could read part of that for us. What I can say to set this up is that the way that teens apply for a card is by uh, sending us an email um, and just letting us know that they're eligible. And uh, often we encourage them to share a little bit, if they're comfortable, about what um, censorship they might be experiencing where they're from. Um, and so as a result, we've heard uh, a lot of stories from teens. Um, so uh, from this piece that I wrote, an overwhelming number of the teens who wrote to us are the real-life counterparts to the characters depicted in challenged and banned books. I am queer, they wrote. I am black. I live in a rural state. I am gay and live in Mississippi. 
According to Pan America's September 2022 report banned in the USA, the two categories of books targeted most frequently, those with books with LGBTQ themes, protagonists, or prominent secondary characters, and those with protagonists or prominent secondary characters of color. Of all banned books, 40% were intended for a young adult audience. These aren't just your garden variety, think of the children responses to books. The challenges come from well-organized conservative groups attempting to erase entire communities. Banning books is just one tool in their arsenal. According to the Pen America report, an estimated 40% of bans are tied to proposed or passed legislation, like the Parental Rights and Education Bill, better known as Don't Say Gay, and the Stop the Wrongs to Our Parents and Employees, Stop Woke Act in Florida. The sharp spike in book bans corresponds with an alarming uptick in anti-trans legislation, with 155 bills being proposed across 23 states in 2022 alone. These include proposals that seek to ban trans youth and young adults from using the correct bathrooms, playing in school sports, and accessing gender-affirming health care. When a Black student can't read about their own history or the social movements currently in progress, or when a trans student can't experience the affirmation brought on by seeing themselves authentically, or even joyfully, portrayed in a book, it is a fracture that has a long-term impact on their well-being and their understanding of the world around them. Books on topics such as race and sexuality are quickly disappearing from our shelves, often to an extreme degree, wrote one teen. Earlier in the school year, a book about Rosa Parks was temporarily banned in my county and the government is at war against educating students about critical race theory. Another important thing I learned from reading these emails is for many teens, accessing books of any kind can be difficult. Underfunded libraries in rural areas may have limited hours or be too far to visit on a regular basis. Some teens have fines, and their borrowing privileges are blocked. Trans teens don't have IDs with their chosen names, and they avoid the library since they would have to use their dead name to get a library card, possibly outing themselves. Others are currently unhoused and unable to apply for a library card because they lack the required identification. Still, they are determined to read. I run into many issues trying to get into different public libraries due to me being a foster kid. I would like this email linked to the digital BPL account if I can get one, wrote teen, one teen. We read thousands of letters from teens who wish to read books but could not. Teens with print disabilities or who are neurodiverse need audiobooks or ebooks with accessibility functions like open dyslexic type, a special font style which helps make text more legible to people with dy dyslexia. Patrons with disabilities should have the same reading options as those who are non-disabled, but many libraries do not have the funds to provide them. We also heard from teens who did not feel safe being seen with books about anti-racism, sexuality, or trans narratives. For them, requesting and borrowing digital books is a lifesaver. One teen, who had recently come out, found their library card blocked by family members. Others said at school they were often victims of racial slurs or physical assaults and simply were afraid to go out even to the library. When you can't safely leave your house or stay in it, when you lack access to books, you cannot fully participate in public life. And that should concern everyone. When our neighbors have access to information and education, we all reap the benefits of a stronger community and more vibrant culture. Like other members of my team, I read the notes, often hundreds at a time, on nights and weekends, 
on top of my regular responsibilities at BPL. Some of the letters were hopeful, like the 13-year-old who was starting a book club to stand up to discrimination and wanted a card for every member. But there were times when after reading so many pain-soaked refrains, I needed to step away. Still, I always returned because it was an honor to be trusted with their stories and because these young people were counting on us, often writing at great personal risk. Thank you so much. I learned so much from reading that piece. There were so many accessibility issues and ways that people might not be able to access books that had not occurred to me. I grew up near several spectacular public libraries and my parents would just regularly drop me at them and leave me there for hours. I mean, the, the fact that that's not so easy for everyone is um, is a crying shame. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Uh, one of your colleagues mentioned that you now, 18 months into this program, have even more specific stories of teens using these library cards. And I wonder if you can share any of those with our listeners. Um, so we, yeah, we're at the point now where uh, the people who applied in April 2022 and beyond are now renewing their card for another year. This program has gone on for so long and we really meant it to be something that was temporary and now it's become sort of ephemeral. Um, but we hear from um, people who have been using the card saying that our collection is so much more robust than what they have access to and really reflects them. Um, they are in many cases unable to access uh, these books in their school library as well. I mean, in a lot of cases, um, the school library is the one place where a student, a, a teen might have access to that book. Um, and so honestly, it's, it's actually a myth when people say, oh, you can't ban a book or, you know, if, because they can get it on the internet or they can find it in other places. Um, but in, for a lot of teens, once it's removed from a school library or, or the public library, it's gone forever. That's it. So, uh, we've heard from many teens that our collection is the only place that they have access. Some of us have told us that it's life-saving to have this card, um, and being able to have this sort of space that they can create for themselves um, via our national teen e-card. It also talks speaks to like in a in a very as a writer a powerful way to like why books are so powerful. I mean because you can't creating movies or television requires a lot of capital. So suddenly then corporations get involved. There are questions: Should we do this? Should we do that? Right. One person writes a book and then can speak to thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, right? And they don't have to have permission of like the Chinese government to sign off on it so we can distribute this in China, you know, or whatever, whoever's going to sign off on it, right? It's one person can make that act and then speak to everyone. And that is why, you know, books have this incredibly asymmetric, asymmetric cultural power. And that's, you know, why people want to ban them also because they recognize, right, that people who are politically active can create movement and change through books. We, I mentioned this earlier. I was joking about DeSantis and Abbott coming up to, to arrest you, but uh, not to give them any ideas. But uh, are there challenges to the, to the program? I mean, um, have you had any uh, issues? What are you going to do if you do? I mean, what happens when this gets on Fox News, if, if Fox News decides to run a story about this terrible program that you have? We, honestly, this is such a boring answer. We really have not had any 
push back, you know, a, a few uh, annoyed emails at the beginning, maybe. Um, but we've really only heard from the people that are supportive of this program. And also, That's and the, good. yeah, and the media response too. I and mean, only a few annoyed emails is pretty good for anything a library does. And people write about. I know. You know. Yeah, there are people that are. <laughs> we definitely have patrons who are more annoyed about other things uh, that we, that I are bet. happening at the library. But um, no, we have we have a wonderful community here of our patrons. Oh, they're perfect. I know they're... everyone's. <laughs> um, I mean, we're we're here for them. We wouldn't exist without them. But um, I mean, I can tell you one personal, very small thing, which. I just sort of laughed at um, was I did a, a Reddit uh, AMA a few months ago. Um, and one person I guess who attended that tweeted at BPL that I, uh, with my full name saying, BPL, do you have any response to this? Lee Hurwitz wants uh, to give copies of Hustler to all preschool children in the country. You know, just this kind of like stock statement. And it's like, Okay, and and BPL was incredibly supportive and asked me how I wanted them to handle it, and you know we just sort of ignored it. Um, so I mean I think just the response here in general is one that or, is. Lee, is that why they put you in the printing <laughs> room for this interview? It's why I'm in the printing room. They're just trying to bury me. I, this is all copies of Hustler behind me that I, I will be giving out in a minute. Um, no, uh, the, this institution is so incredibly supportive of all of its staff and uh, pretty unwavering in its commitment to access and intellectual freedom. Um, so I think we have enough goodwill locally and nationally that um, we would be able to withstand any any negative attention from Fox News. I mean... You know, something that's been happening across the country is that uh, public libraries have seen an increase in bomb threats being called in. Yes. Uh, and a lot of times it's because of things like Drag Story Hour. Um, this did happen to us recently as well. But it wasn't, you know, directly connected to Books Unbanned. I mean, there are other things that are part of this whole, you know, boiling cauldron, um, but that aren't directly related to Books Unbanned. So... Well, we'll see if we can fix I was that. Say, there's, but I know podcast. this is going to surprise you. There's not a ton of overlap between our listeners and Fox News watchers. Um, so so you, you may not be, may not be at show. huge risk um, being with us. But I'm curious just because I like for for people who maybe don't know or just if things have changed since since the days when my mother would drop me off at the library and leave me there for hours. Like, What are the privacy what are the like what kind of privacy do kids have around like if you go to a public library and you're 13 years old and your parents want to see the list of books you checked out can they like because it seems like one of the important things here is privacy right like that these kids and that's one of the things that digital collections allow too that you know if you're reading something on your kindle it's it's less um visible maybe what you're reading than if you're reading um you know a book with its regular dust jacket or like, have you had and like, so, I mean, it sounds like you haven't had parents writing in to say, like, what is my kid reading and how are you like, why are you making that possible? Like when you're a minor, um, which most of these books on band readers must be like what um, what privacy rights do you have with what you're reading? Um, so one thing is that we and this is different in every public library system. You know, they all have different um requirements about you know what ID you need to be eligible for a card and things like that um, but for anyone who's 13 years old and up you do not need a parent or guardian 
to sign the application or give permission for you to have a library card. For children who are 12 years old and under, I mean, you can have your own library card pretty much as soon as you're born. Um, and, you know, for now, we do require anyone who's 12 years old and under uh, to have a parent or guardian, you know, sign the application uh, so that they can have a library card. But I will say that something we've uncovered as a result of Books Unbanned is finding out that there are a lot of public libraries in this country that require you to have a parent or guardian approve uh, your library card application up until 18 years old, which is shocking. And and uh, a colleague of mine actually is putting together a survey to see what sorts of policies like this are in place and to, and to say, okay, are you doing this because this is just the way you've always done it and no one's evaluated it in a long time? Or is there something else at play uh, in, in this requirement? Um, this so is we, wild. Like you can go get your driver's license, but you can't. Yeah. The light, the light is creepily flickering behind me because it doesn't it doesn't it's a horror story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, why would you be able to get a driver's license, but not a library card? I know. So, I mean, we we take the privacy of all of our patrons extremely seriously. Um, we don't share data. We also don't keep track of uh, what people have borrowed once, you know, they return it. So we don't even keep track of that information. And we take the privacy of, you know, we, we consider our national teen e-card holders uh, our patrons, too. And we take their privacy just as seriously. And that's also why, you know, we've um, one of the reasons for Books Unbanned is to find out what is happening in this country and hear it directly from teens themselves. Um, and we've collected a lot of stories and we're really um, we we take their privacy and their vulnerability in sharing these stories with us really seriously. And so we are figuring out a way that we can um, get consent. Um, from some of them to share their stories, even if it's in, you know, an anonymized way. Um, but I think uh, that that is an example of how we treat our patrons in Brooklyn as well. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So you've been talking about um, this program's various successes. And I'm curious about what's ahead. You mentioned you thought it would be temporary and now it seems like it might be a longer term fixture and that Seattle Public Library is now on board. Um, I've been reading about all of these other things like like the Banned Book Club app where it will sort out what books are banned in your area based on your geolocation and then help you check them out. I was like, yes, finally, the geolocation thing doesn't freak me out anymore. Um, anyway, I'm curious about um, what you have in the works, I understand you may have a new podcast in the wings. Yes. So um, since you, I'll mention that first, since you brought it up, um, we have sort of an extension of our borrowed podcast uh, called Borrowed and Banned, um, which is seven episodes long and um, really takes you into the history of censorship in this country, especially as it relates to uh, books and libraries. And um, sort of takes like a macro and micro look at all of this, uh, focusing on individual stories, but also sort of like the, the broader um, history. I know I keep saying that word history, but that's what it is. Um, and uh, just why and how books are being banned and what people can do about it. I think that's a really important piece of this, too. OK, what are we going to do about it now? 
Um, and it debuts on September 28th. So that's very soon. So that that's our podcast. Um, and, you know, I, I, I should have talked about this a little bit more, but uh, we also have an intellectual freedom uh, teen council, which has been going on uh, for about a year. It meets virtually once a month with teens uh, from Brooklyn, but also teens throughout the country. Um, and they have some really incredible guest speakers come, um, but they talk about things like advocacy um, and how they can um, make ties in, in their community to other teens as well and figure out how they can um, fight back together. We also have uh, been partnering with PEN America to do uh, virtual advocacy workshops. So we had one in February and we have another one coming up in October. So uh, these are um, free virtual workshops for any high school student around the country. Um, they will meet weekly starting on October 19th and focus on um, how, you know, what, what things you need to say at a school board meeting, um, you know, how to know uh, what points you really need to make. Um, we'll have uh, authors coming to talk to them, authors who have frequently banned books um, and other people that are working on uh, fighting back against censorship and really giving them the tools um, to know what to do. Um, so more things like that where we're focusing on teens and giving them um, the support they need. Um, and, and again, you know, um, partnering with other public libraries, uh, around the country who are, um, I think in, in a situation that we're not necessarily in, um, with some really serious, um, sometimes legal, um, troubles. Well, speaking of supporting libraries, I work a lot with the Kansas City Public Library as well as with the New York Public Library, but, uh, I, I do, uh, Sugi has been part of this fundraiser that I do in Kansas City for the Kansas City with the Kansas City Public Library that supports our MFA students to who then teach free creative writing classes at the Kansas City Public Library and also supports uh, um, a, a book award, the Maya Angelou Book Award for uh, writers who are interested in social justice. So that's one way you can raise money for your library, which that event does. Coming up on October 5th, everyone, who if you want to give us some money. Um, but what else can the general public do to support libraries, not just in Brooklyn, but all across the country? Uh, you can, you know, every public library has a different um, structure. So, for example, we are a 501c3. We're not a government agency. But that's not the case for uh, many other public libraries around the country. And some do have uh, boards that make decisions about what is happening with collection development policies and other things. So you can attend board meetings. You can run for uh, the board um, and really just um, we, what is happening right now, uh, the pushback that we're seeing the people behind censorship are a very vocal but small minority. And that's something that's really important to keep in mind. Um, the majority of people and communities around the country don't want this. They don't want people's freedom restricted. They don't want teens to be told what they can and can't read and have access to. So um, if you're one of those people, then it's important to um, make yourself known at the library and get involved as much as you can with policy and legislation. Well, listeners, on that note, you know what to do. Um, we will all be running for office shortly. Um, Lee, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, don't miss Unbanned Books. If you know a teen between the ages of 13 and 21, they are eligible for that e-card. 
And the new podcast, Banned and Borrowed, will be out soon. So don't don't forget to check that out. And during Banned Books Books Week, um, between October 1st and 7th, go and find the thing they don't want you to read and check it out. Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>